What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. What about you, Theodore? What do you love most about Samantha? Oh, God. <laughs> She's so many things. I guess that's what I love most about her. You know, she isn't just one thing. She's so much larger than that. Oh, thanks, Theodore. Yeah, we like you too, Samantha. That's Joaquin Phoenix with Scarlett Johansson in 2013's Her, directed by Spike Jones. This week on the show, we start our look back at the best of the 2010s with our top 10 performers of the decade. A couple of contenders, surely, in that one. And how about the rest of the cast of Her? Rooney Mara, Amy Adams, both best of the decade candidates as well. There's even a Chris, Chris Pratt. You mean the fifth best Chris? <gasps> Ouch, aren't there only four Chrises? <laughs> what? Our performers of the decade and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. So, jokes aside, Josh, did you really put Chris Pratt as your fifth best Chris? Who was number four then? Uh, no, he might have been four. I think I had Chris O'Dowd, I believe, was my number five Chris. <laughs> okay, so yeah. there's kind of four big Chrises. Yeah. There's Pine, there's Evans, there's Pratt, and who am I forgetting? There's Pine, there's Evans, there's Pratt, and there's Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth. How can I forget? Adam Thor. What's wrong with you? Himself. Okay, we have the Chris's established. Are any of them going to make your top 10 performers of the decade? My performers of the decade list is Chris-less, I'm afraid. (laughs) And I do have to say, we might need to revisit um, that Chris Power ranking because after, you know, we did that before Avengers Endgame. We talked about this on the live show. With uh, Chris Evans. Before Knives Out. So crucial to Avengers Endgame and wonderful in Knives Out. I had Pine at the top of my list. Hasn't really given me much lately. So Pine better get to work or uh, Evans is coming for him. My Chris Power ranking, obviously not very clear in my mind, (laughs) but according to our producer Sam in my notes in front of me, I had Pratt all the way up at number two. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I remember at the time I was going for a little bit of a Josh Larson contrarian. I'm going to mix this up a little bit and make the case for Pratt. And I do feel like I made a pretty decent case for him. But in retrospect, Mm -hmm. that does feel suspect to me. Yeah. Like I would have never remembered that. Welcome to my world, Adam. This is is a part (laughs) of it as well. It is. Now, who was your number five, Chris? I think I had Chris Messina. Yeah. He's in Birds of Prey. He's in Birds of Prey. I'll say that. And we'll move on from that. We will. Great guy. Had a chance to meet him, interview him at the Sharp Objects premiere a few years ago. A very good Chris. I have yet to see him in Birds of Prey. We are sharing our top 10 performers of the decade. Back in 2010, we were looking back, of course, on the 2000s. You were not here yet, Josh. And we split it up. We did Actors of the Decade on one show. We did Actresses of the Decade on another. For this one, we decided to combine them into one top 10. And that could mean you've got an even split of five actors, five actresses, or you could mix it up however you wanted. We know that there are not going to be any Chris's dominating your list. So set up for us before we get to the pick. Set up any criteria you use to make these difficult choices. Well, let's state the obvious. I think this is probably how most people would have gone about this, but it is not so much about how much I like these films. We're going to get to that when we do our best films of the 2010s. It's really more about how much I like the performances in them. Now, there might be some overlap. I think there's going to be a probably fair amount a lot. of overlap. But I did try, when, when I was ranking 
these performers. It, this got really difficult. Yeah. I thought it was going to be incredibly easy. And I will just say uh, the list I would have jotted down if we were just, you know, hanging out at a bar talking and I made a quick mm-hmm. list of the top 10. That would look very differently than after I had put hours into looking at filmographies yes. and rereading old reviews. Uh, things shifted quite a bit. So this Me too. this is going to be interesting. Uh, I found that I had to really resist recency bias. Um, so it's not about who, for me, it was not about who I'd be most excited to see in a movie this year. Sometimes we use that criteria yeah. for making tough decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all about looking back for me and, and thinking about their body of work over those 10 years and as part of that, the cultural impact they had mm-hmm. as a star, as, as someone making movies people talked about that mattered to people. So, yeah, that really shifted where I thought I was going to go with this list. Yeah, I'm in exactly the same place, though. I had a very difficult time separating great performances from the great films. And I even factored in to some extent, oh, they're in a title that might be one of my top 10 favorite films of the decade or even top five, but they have a very small part in it. So how much does that factor in? Am I giving them too much credit for having that great title in their filmography over at IMDb? But I did, after doing a lot of this math and re-ranking and re-ranking, I did come up with, I suppose, a benchmark. And you're going to see that I think I hit it with every single choice, maybe one or two here you're going to hear at 10 and 9 who are questionable. But otherwise, I realize that looking at the full scope of the best performers, 10 to 20 actors and actresses that I was trying to then whittle down into five each, essentially, I did realize that they all had at least three great performances and usually at least three great films. And often those were exactly the same, but not in every case, Josh. So I thought about that. And then in terms of actually trying to articulate these picks and what stands out to me about these actors and actresses, I did something that I know is going to be very reductive, but it's thinking of a word or thinking of a phrase that I can kind of apply to their work and particularly the types of characters they play and these performances that stand out to me. What's the connective tissue there? Because we talk a lot about the auteur theory as it applies to directors, of course, to filmmakers, and we praise them when they seem to make the same kind of film, basically. Here I am being reductive again, but the same kind of film over and over and over again. And I think we all tend to praise actors and actresses when they're doing a variety of different types of roles and maybe not hitting the same themes or character traits over and over again. But I do like to question that a little bit. And I do think that when you look at least at some of the performers I zeroed in on, You look at the sum of their choices, and I wonder if it does reflect something about who they are as individuals and certainly as artists. Certain preoccupations and concerns come through in the characters they play. The movies might be very different. The way they play these characters might be very different. But there are some of those threads. I tried to tap into that a little bit. Yeah, and it's inevitable, I think, when you're looking at filmographies and all of these performances start merging together in your head, you do see the commonalities. And I would completely agree. That's not necessarily a bad thing. There are um, types is a reductive word, mm-hmm. but there are um, certain human experiences that a particular actor is particularly adept at capturing. Mm-hmm. And that's not a slight. That isn't to pigeonhole them. That's to say that is where they're really good at. And, and they're and clearly drawn to it. They're drawn to it. I don't think it's just that they're trying parts. to hit a home run every time. It's that yep. there is something in the art, in the work itself yeah. that draws them in. Yeah. So I had a few cases where a phrase would pop to mind as well for me also. So we'll okay. see. Well, we are going to do this a little bit out of our usual order instead of just counting down 10 to 1, though that is how we're going to start. 
if we have any overlap, we have not shared these picks in advance. We wanted this to have that element of surprise to it. But if we have some overlap, for example, if your number 10 is, say, my number four, I'll go ahead and talk about that number four choice here, and we'll see how it all shakes out. But I am really eager to see how similar our lists are. I'm guessing we probably only have a few crossovers. I think there has to be a few, but you might surprise me. I'm going to say probably half of them are crossovers. And this one definitely is. I think the surprise is going to be where I have this actor. This is one that really shifted in motion. Um, I've got Adam Driver at 10. He just made the cut. And let me preface this by saying... We're talking about the top 10 performers of the decade. So this is no slight on Adam Driver. Not at all. To have someone on this list uh, means they've done remarkable work. If I had been sitting in the bar with you writing on the cocktail napkin, he probably would have been in the top three, top four. And he deserves to be on this list for good reason. I mean, he worked like a madman through this decade. Let's listen to listener Glenn Johnson from Indianapolis. He's going to make the case for Adam Driver. Hey, Film Spotting. This is Glenn Johnson from Indianapolis, Indiana. And my pick for the performer of the decade would go to Adam Driver. Um, Not only is he probably the most prolific performer of the tens, but I also think he probably has the best track record. Um, He was in five of the movies that made my personal 25 of the 2010s, which were Silence, Inside Lewin Davis, Meyerowitz Stories, Patterson, and The Last Jedi. And even just looking at that list of movies, thinking about the uh, directors he's gotten to work with, Scorsese, Coen Brothers, Bombach, Jim Jarmusch, and Ryan Johnson, which is just really impressive. And I think no matter what role he's in, whether he's serious or smarmy, um, the authenticity that he brings, um, I think, really culminated in what is probably his best performance in Marriage Story right there at the end of the decade. That I think his character in that movie blends all the best and worst aspects of the characters he typically plays into a really empathetic and amazing portrait of a of a character. So I I just think he is also the one that I'm the most excited to see what he does in the 20s. So Adam Driver, that's my pick. Thanks, guys. So Glenn factoring in there the looking ahead, the expectations, and and I am with him. I think that he might be, the 2020s might be as good of a decade as he had. It sort of feels like he's just getting started. When you look back at some of the stuff he's done, you can see how he's trying to figure things out in certain ways. But yeah, those directors that Glenn mentioned, here are the films included in that work that I would mark as highlights for Adam Driver for the decade. Inside Lewin Davis, Patterson, Silence, Black Klansman, The Dead Don't Die, and then, yes, what I would consider Driver's personal triumph with Baumbach, Marriage Story. I think that's where he is at his best, maybe maybe paired with Patterson. I think that's a perfect fit for Driver as well. And and Patterson actually might be the most Driver-like performance. Hmm. I think he's pushed in Marriage Story and and to a, a different place, and he's able to get there. But Patterson is where he feels like he's doing what he's most intrinsically good at. And I can't, I don't have a phrase for you or like Glenn did for Adam Driver because he is something of an enigma to me still in a good way. And if the only reason he's not higher on this list for me is maybe because those are smaller parts in a lot of those movies Mm -hmm. I mentioned. Um, he's, He's maybe not the best thing in those movies. There are Adam Driver performances that don't work for me. I think he can have an anti-presence. That's partly what makes him interesting. He he resists being categorized hmm. on screen. I'm trying or to think falling. of a performance of his that I don't. Well, you're not going to agree with me because 
I am not as high on While We're Young, the Baumbach film, as you are. You love it. It's one that yeah, doesn't I work love for him me in it. at all. And and I just can't connect with him. I think in Logan Lucky, he feels sometimes Driver can feel a little out of place on the screen. And again, I think that's because he's so unique and he's still figuring out in some of these earlier films where his place is and directors are still figuring out how to use him. Again, Jarmusch in Patterson used him perfectly. Kylo Ren, that went to his credit for me uh, on the good end of the ledger. I think he is one of the better things about the recent Star Wars trilogy, that performance. But that kind of captures what I mean, too. You know, he's he's a little off as, as a, a figure in the Star Wars universe there as Kylo Ren. He's doing something a little differently mm-hmm. um, than the heroic or villainous thing. It works. I think it's interesting, but it is hard to categorize. So Adam Driver, um, still one of the premier talents of the last 10 years, even though he kind of, I feel like, is just getting started. Yeah, such a premier talent. I have him way higher. I have yeah, Adam I Driver at six. Six. Oh, okay. Yeah, and actually there was a time as I was taking my notes where I thought, should he be in the top five? Should Adam yeah. Driver be in the top five? You could make that case as well. But I do have him at number six. And I got this comment over at the Film Spotting Facebook page from Elliot Foster, echoing what Glenn had to say. You as well, Josh. He mentioned those same five directors as Glenn, but threw in Spike Lee and Spielberg, who he did work with in a small role in the film Lincoln. But Elliot wrote this. Most actors don't have that kind of rap sheet for a whole career. He gave us the most memorable and complex Star Wars character since Darth Vader, in my opinion, And somehow, this is what you said, Josh, somehow it still feels like his career has only begun. So in terms of the math, you do have four great Adam Driver performances in at least three great films. When I'm saying great, I don't mean just very good. I mean, they almost certainly made my top 10 of the year. They came out. And as I'm thinking about my top 20 of the decade, they're at least in the conversation, maybe in the top 50 or 60 somewhere. And those films for Driver, for me, would be Marriage Story. They'd be While We're Young, Black Klansman. And the performance in Patterson, I'm a very big fan of that film by Jarmusch. I wouldn't put it on the same tier with the previous three films I mentioned. And then I do think you have a fifth great performance in a fourth really good film, which is that Scorsese film Silence. And I'll confess my sin here. That's a movie that I saw in the end of year awards rush. Yeah, I don't think we talked about it. We didn't talk about it at all. I didn't write about it. I honestly didn't think about it much afterwards. It slipped through the cracks for me, which is a shame, not only because of Driver's work in it, but because of Martin Scorsese's work on that film. I have a lot of respect for it. It's just not a film I can talk about really with any clarity whatsoever, but it's really good. And I think he's also really good in The Dead Don't Die and in Logan Lucky. He's good in Midnight Special in a smaller role. He pops up in Francis Ha and, of course, as well as Inside Lewin Davis. And you can't talk about him without talking about Star Wars. And I think it's so easy to look back now on Kylo Ren, no matter what you think of that new trilogy overall. Almost everybody I talk to recognizes Kylo Ren and Adam Driver specifically as one of the strengths Mm -hmm. of those films. But it could have been a disaster, man. This emo drama kid who wants to take over his grandfather's business. I mean, it really could have not worked. And yet, through those three films, the dramatic question at the core of that trilogy isn't at all what's Rey's lineage. It's whether she and Kylo Ren, whether Rey and Kylo Ren will fulfill their destinies and how those destinies intersect. And scene to scene... It's about reading the torment that Kylo Ren is experiencing. And I have the same word written down here. He's an enigma. Mm -hmm. And that really comes through in his performance as Kylo Ren. Moment to moment, you're wondering what he's thinking. You're wondering what he's going to do next. 
He always has you off guard. I think that's because of the strength of driver's performance. And I'm repeating myself here, but you go back to our rap party where we did our five categories, best of the year, opening scene, funniest moment, most moving moment. We also did music moment and ultimately scene of the year. I mean, I said this was driver's year. He gave us ghouls, that great line reading in the Jarmish film. He gave us the shrug in Rise of Skywalker. And then in Marriage Story, I had scenes that he was involved in as the number one pick or the runner up in all five of those categories. So he is an amazing talent. And I recently read that New Yorker profile of him and the writer talks to Spike Lee and poses the question to him, why is it that everybody wants to work with Adam Driver right now? And Spike's answer was, there's a very simple answer. Game respects game. That's how Spike put it. So I didn't come up with this one, but I'm calling Adam Driver the game master because in terms of pure acting chops, the talent to play almost any role you would throw at him with conviction and humor and soul. I don't know that there's anybody on my entire list who has more. The the enigma element, I think what I'm really looking forward to is seeing him and seeing other great directors he's going to work with harness that enigmatic quality and direct it somewhere that's really fascinating because you're right. You you can see where it could almost teeter with Kylo Ren off the rails and go the wrong direction. Maybe that maybe that's why I'm leaning as we're talking and thinking about this toward Patterson being his best performance because it retains, there's an enigmatic quality to that mm-hmm. character that works for the story, whereas Marriage Story, as brilliant as he is, is it's it's in a character you fairly un, you understand fairly well you know there there are some complications he's not uncomplicated yes but Charlie is not mysterious I see the distinction so th- so yeah and but again we're just I'm making the same point that he can do both so well speaks to the talent are you uh, interested in poetry uh, actually I am kind of really yeah I write poetry I keep it all in this notebook secret notebook. Oh, you're a poet? Yeah. That's great. Would you like to hear one? Sure, sure. It doesn't really rhyme, though. That's okay. I kind of like them better when they don't. Yeah, me too. All right. So we've heard your number 10. We've heard my number six, Adam Driver. Who's your number nine performer of the decade? Okay. Boy, this hurts me because it wasn't too long ago I was asking if this was the best actress of the 2010s, and I still think she's in the conversation. But Elizabeth Moss, when I sat down to do this list, fell down yeah. to number nine. Okay, And I think for me, it's it's partly, again, I'm, I'm backing into the list here. It's partly because her strongest work was on television. I don't know if it's fair. We're a film show. So we're going to maybe, I'm going to hold that a I'm little gonna bit I'm going to make a ruling. It's not fair. Okay. It probably isn't <laughs> you fair. You have to discount The Handmaiden and... Mad Men, but you're right. If you include those, then how is she not one of the performers of the decade? And Jane Campion's crime series, Top of the Lake. Yeah. So, so you know, those three works alone and her work in them specifically. I mean, Mad Men, I, I made the argument she's as crucial to that series, almost as crucial, let's say, as Don Draper. She was the lead in, in uh, Top of the Lake and the lead in The Handmaid's Tale. But I look back at the big screen, too, and uh, the one I love, I think she's great in. I know you love the film more than me, Adam, but the collaborations she did with Alex Ross Perry. Mm-hmm. She's been my favorite thing about those, including probably her tour de force performance of the last 10 years is in her smell, I think, just from last year. And then, yes, yeah, squeezing in that great supporting part in us last year as well. 
getting to show her comic chops. Um, I had to keep her on this list, but when I started comparing her to the filmographies we're going to get to, higher up, yeah, I couldn't put her up there at the very top. Yeah, same process with me, though she slipped a little further. I did begin by ranking top 10 actresses, top 10 actors, then figured out how to merge them and which ones made the cut. I have Elizabeth Moss in my 6 through 10 actresses, but did not make my top 10 overall. My number 10 is an actress. And this is one where you could accuse me, Josh, of maybe looking ahead a little too much. But I think the foundation of great work in this decade is also there. But she is the only other one, the woman I'm about to mention, she's the only other one with Driver who feels to me like locks. We could already pencil them in for when we're doing this list in 10 years. Okay, We're going to look back on the 2020s and go, of course, this was the decade of Adam Driver and of Saoirse Ronan. Mm. The three great performances come in Brooklyn, in Lady Bird, and of course, last year in Greta Gerwig's Little Women. And there's two great films there for me, all-time great films, frankly, in Lady Bird and Little Women. I'm less high on Brooklyn, though I like Brooklyn quite a bit, and I really do think it's a wonderful performance from her. She also appears, of course, in Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel, and I really like her in Joe Wright's Hannah. For me, Ronan is the insistent innocent. There's some naivete about her as you look at those performances, Brooklyn, Lady Bird, Little Women, but really it's just a lack of experience. There's this sense that she still has a lot to learn about herself and about the world and relationships. She's going to make mistakes. She's going to make a fool of herself, but that's because she's always going to put herself on the line. There's a determination and there's a voraciousness to Ronan's characters that I find really appealing. I was looking back at my notes from our review of Lady Bird, and I mentioned the way she just kind of burns with this intensity and this focus. It's almost like she's from another planet in the way she talks and the way she's studying the people she's engaging with. There is this provocation that is inherent to the Lady Bird character where she's just so eager to expand her knowledge, her base of knowledge. It seems like that's what she's after in every encounter in life. And maybe more than anything, Josh, the reason why I wanted to make sure I fit Ronan on this list is I just want to continue to put out into the universe this idea that I did see floating around social media after a recent Hollywood Reporter Q&A with Ronan and Greta Gerwig, where They talk about future collaborations with each other. And there's a great question by the interviewer posed to Gerwig about working with Ronan and differences in working with her now versus Lady Bird. And I thought Gerwig's answer was really instructive. She says, it's the benefit of working with someone you've worked with before. I felt like in some ways I had conceived Lady Bird before I knew she was playing it. And I'd written my drafts of Little Women before I knew she was playing it. But I don't know any other way to say it except she was an author of Lady Bird. But even more so, she was an author of Little Women. I felt like she knew exactly what we were making the whole time as a filmmaker, as much as an actor. She really became a second director for me. It was like an extension of every thought I had. She'd walk out in another step. I think, honestly, the closest I've had to it is writing with Noah, Noah Baumbach, who is her partner. But that's fitting of Gerwig, I think, and her personality that she's so generous in giving Ronan all that credit as an artistic collaborator. But I think it speaks to the intelligence. And again, that voraciousness that comes through in her characters, it's probably embedded within Ronan herself that made her such a good collaborator with Gerwig. And the key line from this Q&A 
is Gerwig saying, I'm interested to see what movie we make when Saoirse's in her 50s and I'm in my 60s. <laughs> Won't that be interesting? And I'm thinking, that's great, but I want to see the movie that you make together when Saoirse's in her 30s and when Saoirse's in her 40s. I can't wait until the 50s. I would be perfectly content if those two just continued to make movies together until the end of time. So Saoirse Ronan did just sneak onto my list at 10. Hey, I, I like your band. Uh, with Jonah Ruiz, L'Enfance New. L'Enfance New. Uh, well, I, I saw your Thanksgiving show. My name's Ladybird. It's weird you shake hands. Yeah. I'm friends with Jenna, and she's always talking about how great your band is, so I wanted to check it out. Yeah, Jenna's hot tight. Yeah. Maybe I'll see you at the Deuce or something, huh? Sure. See you at the Deuce. Yeah, almost made it on mine, but you we were on, thinking the same way. The phrase I had here in my notes is 2020s might be her decade. It's it, She ended the 2010s so incredibly strong with Brooklyn, Lady Bird, and Little Women that it is another case of sort of, as wonderful as those performances mm-hmm. are, the sense of just getting started. So I uh, didn't hold that against her, just couldn't push her on the list, an honorable mention for me. Okay, at number eight, I have, ooh, we haven't talked about this. You mentioned it a little bit, talking about choices who have small supporting parts. Here's an actress who has mostly made her name in killing supporting parts, but has done so many of them so well. I thought, yeah, I'm going to put someone who's associated as a supporting player on this list. I I'm think putting we're going to share. Yeah. I'm putting Tilda Swinton We're going to share list. this pick and share the spot. She's Very my nice. number eight as well. It helps when I look back at the whole decade that she closed out her run as the White Witch in the Chronicles of Narnia films in 2010. That was Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So she started out the decade there, which is strong. If you grew up on those books, you know she was the perfect casting choice. That that just worked so well. Then she spent the decade collaborating. Here we go again, listing collaborators. But Wes Anderson, she played social services in Moonrise Kingdom, Madame D in Grand Budapest Hotel, and then the voice of the Oracle in Isle of Dogs. Bong Joon-ho, some guy named Bong Joon-ho she worked with in right. Snowpiercer and Okja. Luca Guadagnino, A Bigger Splash, which mm-hmm. was essentially, I didn't see it actually, but no, a lead role, I believe. Yes. So she does have her chances in lead parts. Suspiria, she also made with Guadagnino. And then Jim Jarmusch, Only Lovers Left Alive, one of his best films. She's the co-lead there with Tom Hiddleston. And of course, she showed up in The Dead Don't Die as well. On top of all that, Swinton managed to squeeze in a double role in a Coen Brothers film. She played the sister gossip columnist in Hail Caesar. She dipped her toes into the MCU, Doctor Strange, and then appeared again in Avengers Endgame. And she had a small part opposite her daughter, Honor Swinton Byrne, in The Souvenir from Mm -hmm. last year, which made my top 10 list. So yeah, most of what I've mentioned are small parts, but every one of them manages to feel essential to those films. I think Swinton, you know, she's thought of as she comes on and, and, and plays the oddball character. But I would say she has just the right amount of oddness. She holds it so holistically and, and, and naturally. She's not forcing it at all. You get the sense if anyone else had played any of these parts, it probably would have been a garish disaster. But she has a certain elegance in her oddness mm-hmm. um, that that makes them, again, not only work, not only be like comic relief, uh, but really intrinsic to what the movies themselves want to do. So I had to have Tilda Swinton on this list. What is that? Oh, negative. That's delicious. Blood on a stick. On a steak. That's not bad. 
very refreshing, especially when you're in a hot spot. Checkmate, my darling. Eve, you're ruthless. You're brutal. I'm a survivor, baby. Yeah, well, you stole all my thunder there. She is the only actress on this list. And I have one actor as well, but she's the only actress who also made my list back in 2010. I had her as my fourth best actress of the past decade, and that's basically where she is as well in this decade for me. And yeah, that's it. I called her the chameleon collaborator, whether it's with Wes Anderson on those two films, whether it's with Bong Joon-ho on those two films. And I do still point to that Snowpiercer performance and that immortally great line where she says, a shoe doesn't belong on your head. A shoe belongs on your foot. A hat belongs on your head. I am a hat. You are a shoe. (laughs) Know your place. Keep your place. Be a shoe. The Jarmish collaborations, as you mentioned, and you talked about Guadagnino. We both have not seen a bigger splash, and it's one based on a lot of the praise for that performance in particular of hers that I do really regret. Suspiria, I was more mixed on, mixed to favorable. I really do like her in that twisted and disturbing turn. But you did overlook one, maybe because you haven't seen it or maybe because of the year it came out. But I Am Love which was the first Guadagnino film I saw. She has a starring role in that. She's incredible in I Am Love. That actually might be her best film of the decade, listed as a 2009 film over at IMDb, but was a 2010 American release. So would qualify for our decade concerns. And yeah, you look at her in the Coen Brothers film and Hail Caesar, her two fun turns in Doctor Strange and Trainwreck. And we haven't mentioned this, the one that most listeners would point to as her defining role of the decade. So far, they're listening to us babble on and on, and they're pulling out their hair. We need to talk about Kevin. Yes. Which was an early review that we did, a movie a lot of people love, that Lynn Ramsey film. We did not love it, but I had no issues at all with that performance by Tilda as the mother in that movie. She is, she's icy, she's this ethereal presence, but she can also be soulful and really hilarious. IndieWire did do a top 50 performances of the decade, I think, in December, and her performance as Eve in Only Lovers Left Alive made the list at number 16. I'm going to quote from that here. Even when her character is slurping a blood popsicle or dumping a body in a vat of acid, Swinton's performance is so human that you can feel every twinge of desire and so natural that you almost don't see it happening. If not for the fangs and Eve's frazzled shock of white hair, it'd be tempting to think she was just playing herself. And yeah, there is this otherworldly quality about her. And yet, no matter how quirky the characters might be or weird the characters might be, they're human. They're always human with Tilda Swinton. That's holding the oddness lightly, you know, that that only she is really capable of doing. I doubt anyone else on our list is going to have that many titles listed after. And it's just not an evidence of busyness either. All of those, as you said, um, are evidence of really good work. All right, should we go with my number seven next? Let's hear it. Okay, at number seven, I've got Robert Pattinson. You're impossibly fast and strong. Your skin is pale white and ice cold. Your eyes change color. And sometimes you speak like like you're from a different time. You never eat or drink anything. You don't go out in the sunlight. How old are you? 17. How long have you been 17? A while. 
Go back to 2012. That's when he was both freed from the Twilight Saga, did his last Twilight film, and appeared in David Cronenberg's Cosmopolis. And that signaled the transformation of Robert Pattinson, this desire to work with the most idiosyncratic, let's just say it, the weirdest directors he could find out there. So maybe this guy isn't quite so weird, but he went on to make The Rover with David Michaud. And that is a film I know we're split on. I think we're split on this performance, Adam, but I am deeply skeptical anytime someone is playing a mentally challenged character. And I'm sorry, Pattinson passed the bar for me on this. Managed to do it to make a real character and do it with respect. Uh, Then he paired up with Cronenberg again for Maps to the Stars, went on to work with James Gray on The Lost City of Z, Safdie Brothers in Good Time, made Damsel with David and Nathan Zellner, and then just this last year, High Life with Claire Denis, The Lighthouse with Robert Eggers, and he did show up in The King with Michaud again. So I would say you look at that list, and it's probably, to my mind, all of those performances are a more successful run with idiosyncratic directors than Adam Driver probably had. I think that when I was trying to weigh these two against each other, they seemed to be close just in in the amount of work they did and the interesting people they worked with. And I realized I like all these performances more consistently yeah. than I happen to like Driver. So that's why he's a little bit ahead of him. Uh, Pattinson, you know, he's a as a performer, he's a bit of a weirdo himself, I think, once he got a chance to to really dig into the things, as you said at the beginning, that interested him, mm-hmm. the types of parts and stories and themes and questions he wanted to explore. But somehow he's also sympathetic as a weirdo and fascinating as a weirdo. He's a little dangerous, too. I think the phrase that came to mind for me with Pattinson is a a sweet insolence that he brings to every part, no matter how varied they might be. And with that filmography, they are very varied indeed. So Robert Pattinson is at number seven for me. Yeah, he made my top 10 actors. He came in at number eight, obviously an honorable mention then for this list and one that I'm kind of still kicking myself about because you're right. He's got at least five, I would say, great performances from the decade, even though I didn't like The Lighthouse that much overall. I really love his performance. High Life, you mentioned, Good Time, The Lost City of Z, more of a supporting role there in The Lost City of Z, mm-hmm. but very good and really great in Cosmopolis. You're right, the rover's the one outlier for me, and maybe I'm wrong about that because I do like some of Misho's other work, and I should probably revisit it, but that's the one performance that stands out and otherwise a pretty remarkable decade. And you talk about an actor who's going to be one of the names we're reckoning with in 10 years. Yeah. It, has to be Robert Pattinson. So we're doing okay. I still have my top five intact. I think you haven't gotten to any of your top five yet. I don't believe I have. Okay, so we're ready to go back a little bit in my six through 10. And I'm going to share my number nine pick. And it's a pick that I think will at once surprise you. And then, of course, when it sinks in for two seconds, you'll realize it's not surprising at all. But this is one, Josh, where as of even just a few hours before we came in to record this very segment... He wasn't even in my top 10 actors. And somehow this voice was just gnawing away at me. I just heard it over and over again, repeating this name. And I may have a problem that I need to address. But for now, I'm going to respect the voice. And I've got it number nine, Ethan Hawke. Yeah, this was a no-brainer. The Hawkesons, baby. I knew he was going to well, be on you here. you say that, but truly, <laughs> I had him outside the top 10, outside the top 10 actors. And then what did it for me, Josh, is I was thinking about what I would classify as just my favorite performance of the decade. 
And that's something we may get to here in the next segment, something Sam, our producer, made us think about a little bit. And I was looking back over all of my Chicago Film Critics Association ballots from the past 10 years, my top five actors and actresses. And there's only one name. This is what did it. There's only one name that appears in the number one spot at least twice. And it's Ethan Hawke. Number one for First Reform, the Paul Schrader film. Number one for Born to be Blue, which is still a movie that I think is criminally underseen. And he was in the top five for the Richard Linklater film Before Midnight. But even going back a little bit, he did solid work in some solid under-the-radar films like Predestination and Maggie's Plan and In a Valley of Violence and The Phenom and Juliet Naked. I liked him even in The Magnificent Seven remake. I thought it was just okay. I thought he was a lot of fun in it. But it's those three great performances in what I think are three great films. And then you add in a smaller turn, but a quintessentially Ethan Hawke turn in a quintessential Richard Linklater film, Boyhood, for me, one of the best films of the decade. Dad? There's no, like, real magic in the world, right? What do you mean? You know, like, elves and stuff. People just made that up. I don't know. I mean, what makes you think that that elves are any more magical than something like, like a whale? You know what I mean? What if I told you a story about how underneath the ocean there was this giant sea mammal that used sonar and sang songs and it was so big that its heart was the size of a car and you could crawl through the arteries. I mean, you think that's pretty magical, right? Yeah. We've talked a lot about Hawk fairly recently. We did our top five Ethan Hawk moments back on episode 696. So I'll just say for me, he's the broken idealist. And in Boyhood, that might be the only case in all of those films where we see a semi-comfortable Hawk character. He's a guy who, you know, seems to be fairly happy or understanding of his lot in life, divorced, I think has a new wife, is still trying to be a guide and teacher to his children. But those other films, Josh, like Born to be Blue, about Chet Baker, that biopic where you've got a character struggling to come to terms with not being as good as your contemporaries, the people you put up on a pedestal before midnight, coming to terms with the reality of your relationship, that it's not the romantic ideal. It once was, if it ever was that. And First Reformed is really fascinating because it's actually, I would argue, an awakening of idealism. But with that, it's so fraught with obstacles and despair that that idealism turns to hopelessness. So a bit of a surprise to even myself, even though I've always been such a big fan of Ethan Hawke, but it really came about over this past decade and with those performances in particular. Yeah, I'm not going to scoff at it. I mean, First Reformed alone is why I had to consider him for this list. So he is an honorable mention for me. I think you're right. Boyhood as well is a quintessential Hawk performance capturing those qualities. For me, it was just the sad fact that I didn't keep up with the Hawkesants yeah. quite as well as you, you didn't did. didn't see a lot of those so films So some I of those mentioned. films you mentioned I haven't seen, maybe that might have bumped him onto the list for me as well. So a little bit of jumping around, a little bit of overlap, but I think we're in a pretty good spot to close out part one here of our top 10 performers of the decade. We haven't heard your number six. We haven't heard my number seven. Your number six, Josh, is? I'm going at number six with Lupita Nyong'o. And good again, pick. spans the decade. You look back towards the beginning of the decade when she first appeared for most people in 12 Years a Slave, 
phenomenal Oscar-winning supporting performance. Then she shows up in Star Wars doing voice work, but she was in those three films, a supporting performance again in Black Panther, and then people are probably sick of hearing me say this, but along came us. So it's a smaller body of work. I had to reckon with that when comparing her to some of the other people I was considering for this list. But I looked at those titles and looked at the performances specifically. This is a case where the work on the screen outweighing maybe the number of films Mm -hmm. or, or even the significance of the films. But she is so instrumental in emphasizing the humanity beating at the heart of the horribly inhumane story of 12 Years a Slave. I mean, she's just crucial to that movie, even though Chiwetel Ejiofor is in the lead. She's absolutely crucial to it. I think her voice work as Maz Kanata really grew on me as those Star Wars films went on. At first in The Force Awakens, it was a little jarring, and I, I couldn't believe that's Lupita Nyong'o. What, what is she doing in this? But Maz Kanata became one of those weird Star Wars characters that developed a distinct personality each time they appeared. And I was kind of always happy to see her pop up uh, when she would make those cameos in those movies. And I'll get to another supporting part in another big franchise as Nakia in Black Panther. The dignity that she carried beneath the terror in 12 Years a Slave, it's worn right out front in Black Panther, along with those amazing costumes. And just to see her again in a smaller part, but to have that sensibility brought to the forefront. And us, I'm not even going to say anything more about it. It's an all-timer, and I'm counting it as two performances. It's two lead performances <laughs> that she kills that puts her on the list. This is the fuzzy number six. Exactly. Well, I can't argue. She certainly was a contender for me in my top 10 actresses, but I think I couldn't quite manipulate the numbers the way you did but you're right between that dual performance and that truly is what it is in us and 12 years a slave as well as some of those supporting turns the case is definitely there for lupita nyong'o my number seven performer of the decade is an actor who didn't have a shot at making my list nowhere close to making my shot in the 2000s but something happened and maybe it was me just growing up, but it was certainly this performer, I think, maturing. I'm getting excited. As well. I think I know who this is. I got Brad Pitt. Yes! I got Brad Pitt at number seven. This makes me happier than if I'd put him on my list. <laughs> I will confess that there's a fair number of his movies from the 2010s I didn't bother to see. Fury, World War Z, a couple of those titles there. But there are four great performances and at least three great films. And those three great films are... Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from last year, and also, for me, James Gray's Ad Astra from last year. And that fourth great performance is Moneyball, which I think is a very good Bennett Miller film. I like the work he did reteam with Andrew Dominic as well in Killing Them Softly. And of course, he does pop up briefly in My Beloved The Big Short, as well as at the end of 12 Years a Slave, a movie he helped produce. I've talked about Pitt a lot lately. We have here on this show coming off the top 10 of the year and coming off the Oscars. I'm going to let Angelica Jade Bastien do the work here because she might be the best writer going generally on acting, but I'd say she definitely is when it comes to movie stars and acting. And she quite recently for Vulture ranked all of Brad Pitt's performances. She had The Assassination of Jesse James, him portraying Jesse James, of course, at number one. And then those two through five on her list were the four films I mentioned. Ad Astra at two, Hollywood at three, Tree of Life at four, Moneyball at five. Brad Pitt, as Angelica would correctly describe him, is 
our man in crisis. Here's what Angelica had to say. In recent years, Pitt has been doing the most consistently interesting work of his career and roles when his coolness is pushed to its limits and his characters find they can no longer run from the emotions they've kept hidden away. He's best at the pitch of contradiction when his self-possession clashes with his rage, loneliness, and masculinity. This is beautifully evident in Terrence Malick's meditative 2011 film, The Tree of Life, in which his assured physicality becomes sharp-edged. This year alone has seen Pitt do career-best work in two very different performances, from the cocksure grace and bloody violence of Cliff Booth in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to the tender yearning of Roy McBride in Ad Astra. I am especially haunted by his work in the latter, which is one of the most piercing depictions of what patriarchal conditioning does to men I've ever seen, each performance speaks with eloquent precision about masculinity, how it's shaped this country, its relationship to violence, and how men compartmentalize emotions. I will link to that article in the show notes for this episode over at filmspotting.net. If you're curious, it is obviously very well-written, well-articulated, with some great takes on Pitt as an actor. And the key line for me, because this is what we all talked about in relation to Cliff Booth at the end of the year— is when Angelica talks about his self-possession. That idea of his physicality and that kind of comfort he has in his own skin. Self-possession, but when that is then tempered by loneliness or it's tempered by anger and frustration and these crises that do come out of his sense of masculinity when that is challenged in some way and Pitt's willingness to take on that challenge as an actor. He's not someone who's shying away from that or is afraid of being vulnerable at all. And I think that's a rare trait for a movie star, certainly, maybe even a rare trait for an actor. And Pitt has turned in to one of our rare great talents. I tried so hard to get him on this list, and I can't give you a good reason why he's not. So it, it thrills me that you've got him on there, Adam. All right. If your favorite actor hasn't been mentioned yet, stick around. Plenty of performers are yet to be covered when we get to our five through one picks in a moment. Stay with us. What is it you want? I got a real bad need to talk with Thump. And he ain't got no need to talk to you. But I need to. I really, really got to, ma'am, please. Some of our blood at least is the same. Ain't that supposed to mean something? Isn't that what is always said? Ain't you got no men could do this? No, ma'am, I don't. That's Jennifer Lawrence and Dale Dickey in Deborah Granick's Winter's Bone. Josh, your number one film of 2010, my number seven. So let me see if my math here works out. We've both got 10 number ones, one for each year of the 2010s. Mm-hmm. We've got 10 number twos. Yes. So if we're coming up with a top 20 of the decade, I mean, it's already done for us, right? 
that would be one way of doing it. And now that this is bearing down on me and the reality of making these picks is staring me in the face, I think I'm just going to do that. Yeah, it it's, might work Otherwise, out. it's way too hard. We are going to start our countdown of the top 20 films of the decade next week. So part one is, of course, our 20 through 11 picks. If you have a movie that you think is among the best of the decade or the very best of the decade that you want to make sure we do not overlook, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also send us an audio file there. You can leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter, at FilmSpotting and at Larson on Film. If you want to head over to the website, filmspotting.net slash events, you'll find that we have passes to give away, advanced screening passes to Monday, the 24th screening of Burden. This tells the true story of Mike Burden's rise in the KKK and his subsequent abandonment in search of forgiveness and redemption. And then also, this one's on Tuesday, February 25, in advanced screening of, speaking of Elizabeth Moss, the Invisible Man. Those will both be at AMC River East in Chicago. So once again, if you want chances to win those passes, head over to filmspotting.net slash events. Beyond the fact that it's Elizabeth Moss, and of course I'm curious really about any film she makes, should I be interested in The Invisible Man, Josh? Are you? Uh, I'll just say Elizabeth Moss is the biggest reason I'm interested in it. Okay. Well, she might be enough of a draw to get us both into the theater. If you listened to last week's show, that means you heard the highlights from our 15th anniversary live show here in Chicago. Hopefully it sounded like a good time. And maybe you're thinking about joining us on the next stop on the tour. We have listeners, of course, all over these United States and all over the world. We hope we've got quite a few who are near Brooklyn, New York, because we're going to be at the Bell House Theater in Brooklyn on Friday, June 19th. At this point, we're not sure what we're going to be talking about on that show. It is going to be a different format. The Bell House does not have a screen. We won't be watching a movie like we did with Rio Bravo. We've kicked around some kind of top five topic. It's mid-June, right in the heart of the best films of the year so far talk. We could partake in that exercise along with our guests. And we've got some great guests because not only is our producer, Sam Van Hallgren, going to join us on stage once again, but how about this quartet? Slate's Dana Stevens, The New York Times' Aisha Harris, Matt Singer, who's from Screen Crush, and Allison Wilmore from BuzzFeed. Listeners likely know them formerly of the Film Spotting SVU podcast. With that group, Adam, would it be okay if I just have a seat in the audience? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I just want to hear them talk. We don't, right? we don't have to do anything, right? <laughs> we don't. So it's going to be great to reunite of sorts with the Film Spotting family. Dana Stevens has been part of previous live shows, our 400th first, episode. First one I ever did. Yeah, yeah, the 400th episode, the 500th episode at the Music Box. She's been a guest in the past too, not part of live shows, just a regular reviewer on the show, but it's been a while and I'm eager to have Dana back on. And Aisha, we have really only heard from as part of our Best of the Year Roundtable, she's one of our featured guests who often leaves us a voicemail with her pick for the best film of the year. We'll be able to get into a little more discussion, obviously, with her in this format, and we're really excited about that. Right before we came in here, I got a question on Twitter that I think is a good one to throw out to our audience, especially, obviously, all those people who are maybe over on the East Coast, and we haven't announced the rest of the dates yet, and people don't know how many stops there are going to be. And maybe like Mike Campbell on Twitter, he's at RentFN. Maybe you're wondering, 
well, do I have to go to the New York show? Or if I'm in the New England area, are they going to come closer? So he asked, will the event at the Bell House be the tour stop for all of New England? He's wondering if I should road trip to see us or might there be a closer venue down the road? And Mike, the answer is that is the furthest east we're going to get. There is right now not a scenario where we envision getting further east than Brooklyn. So if you are anywhere in the vicinity and have always wanted to be part of a live show and you want to help us celebrate 15 years of film spotting, we'd love to see you. The way you can get tickets, they're available over at the Bell House website, and there's an easy way there if you go to filmspotting.net slash events. Again, that's filmspotting.net slash events for more information and to buy your tickets now. Now, if you do want to be the first to hear when we nail down those future tour dates, one easy way would be to become a member of the Film Spotting family on Patreon. We set this up not too long ago now, Adam, and we have listeners who have generously decided to support the show this way, and they get some benefits in return. One of those are live show pre-sales and discounts, too. So if you see if one of these dates works out for you and you want to come, you can get a couple bucks off if you are a film spotting family member. Also, though, this is this is the big prize for joining Patreon. We're doing monthly bonus shows only available through Patreon. As a matter of fact, we're going to later tonight record our first one. It'll come out on Monday, the 24th. We're doing it tonight. It's an extra eight from 84 review. So this is not part of our series that we're doing throughout the year. The eight from 84. This is a bonus one. We're doing 1984's. Beverly Hills Cop, chosen, I should say, by Patreon supporters. We gave them three options, and and they voted for Beverly Hills Cop. So you and I are going to talk about that tonight. Uh, they voted for that over the Karate Kid somehow, over Romancing mm-hmm. the Stone somehow, but we're here to please, so we're going to do Beverly Hills Cop. And yeah, a couple other quick benefits if you do become a supporter of Film Spotting on Patreon. Ad-free episodes as well. Early downloads of the show too. But but I'm really looking forward to doing this Beverly Hills Cop show. Yeah, and actually we did just add a new benefit and that is merch. If you are interested in a Film Spotting t-shirt just for our family members, there's an exclusive code that gets you 30% off any merch over at our tea public shop so just added that one and wanted to mention it and if you are a listener who is not really familiar with patreon or maybe you're even getting to this way after the fact after the 24th and you're thinking well i missed that really wanted to hear it no you didn't miss it as soon as you sign up you have immediate access to all of the old posts so any bonus content that we've given you whether it's written content or it is a bonus podcast you have access to that immediately. And other people may not be aware of this. One of the great things about Patreon is you're not just getting those early episodes and ad-free episodes and the bonus content delivered to you via a link that then you have to listen to maybe in a web browser, listen to it differently than you would a normal podcast. You get your own custom RSS feed that you can really easily add to whatever podcatcher you prefer. So it really is very easy. And our last comment on Patreon here, wanted to share a little bit of feedback from a listener, a longtime listener, Brett Hagen. He's in Minnesota somewhere, Josh, and he's excited about supporting the show. He's excited about this bonus content. Well, my membership isn't going to give you guys much of a bump. I've been giving $5 a month for a few years now via PayPal and essentially just transferred my membership to Patreon to take advantage of the benefits you're offering. In any case, I decided to take this opportunity to thank you for many years of quality film discussions. I've been listening religiously since 2007. 
I'm particularly excited about the eight from 84 films you're discussing. I was 10 years old in 84, and my daughter, a former film spotting onesie model, is now 10 herself. I think she might be on the old film spotting website still. (laughs) We watched Starman together, a film I watched on HBO repeatedly in 84. My brother actually used to call me Starman because of the way I wore my baseball cap and how it never looked quite right. It was a great father-daughter bonding experience, and I hope to do so with at least a couple more films on this list. Thanks again, and keep it going for another 15 years. Thank you, Brett, for that. Thank you for the support, of course. And yeah, the A from 84 series is going to be a fun one that we are going to continue seven films left to discuss. Actually, more than that, as we are blending some films together, seven more weeks of A from 84. And then we're going to have some of those eight isn't enough from 84 bonus segments. You're going to get discussions like the one our family members are going to hear about Beverly Hills Cop. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that film. Josh, more information about supporting the show on Patreon is available at patreon.com slash film spotting. Every two weeks, our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, offers you a new movie pairing, a recent release, and a classic movie. Great hosts, great folks. Three of them were able to come out to our live show, Tasha, Scott, Keith, Genevieve Kosky as well. And it's part two of Fantasy Island. So even more talk about your beloved The Piano and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I'm excited that more people are going to finally see this film. And I'll say something that will work as a transition here into Film Spotting Madness in just a minute. And that is, Sam had a great thought. There was a title he thought maybe we could bump out from Film Spotting Madness and make room for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We I'm were all both, for it. We were both behind this. I don't even know the other title. It doesn't matter. You would have been all in on it, Josh. <laughs> we would have all three been all in, except then Sam immediately, in talking it through with me, realized the problem. And that is, as of right now, nobody but film critics, for the most part, has seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah, that's true. It just isn't fair. It's really just now getting out there to select cities, and it's fun reading some of the responses. I know Celine Sciamma, the director, was just here at the Music Box. I'm bummed mm-hmm. I wasn't able to get to that. But... It certainly isn't fair to the film. It's bad that it's being left off because we'd love to see it among the best films of the decade as part of Film Spotting Madness, but it certainly wouldn't be fair to the movie to put it on there. It would get beat by any film it went up against just because of the number of eyeballs. Unless it was recency bias and, and you know, the people who saw it would be so overwhelmed uh-huh. with its mastery, which is likely going yeah. to happen. They uh-huh. just vote a hundred times. Well, we left it off. But if you want to hear more about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, maybe you finally do get to see it. You hear what all the fuss is about and you want to hear four really smart people talk about that film. You can do that by finding The Next Picture Show wherever you get your podcast. New episodes post every Tuesday at midnight and more info is available at nextpictureshow.net. Which means, deep breath, film spotting madness 2020, Josh, the best of the 2010s. It's officially upon us. Please contain your excitement. Yeah. Okay. I'm in a good place with film spotting madness because for me, the tournament I actually love. The tournament is fine. Ever since I left the Slack channel yeah. about film spotting madness, yeah. my, men- the my, mental, my mental health has improved. Uh-huh. So I'm fine with the tournament. Yeah. We're, this is good. Let's go. Let's do it. Sam and I, we wouldn't trade it for anything. <laughs> That might be our favorite part. It's it's all downhill once the votes start coming in. We've we've had to upgrade our our Slack. We did. We had to like pay for the most robust uh-huh. Slack account you could get just for you and Sam to talk film spotting madness. Pretty much. So if you're new to it, film spotting madness is our annual 64 film single elimination tournament. Though I was thinking about this earlier today. I think the first year of film spotting madness, we did actors and actresses. Mm-hmm. I think we only did 32. 
Somehow, what were we thinking? We didn't have the ambition yet for a full 64 film bracket, but we do have ultimately 64 films from the 2010s, and only one of them will reign supreme. Last week, if you missed it, go back and listen. We talked through the 17 play in matchups. The winners of those matches will round out the final 64. And those play in polls are still alive through this weekend, and a few of them are still too close to call. So your vote definitely matters. We heard from Nico, who wrote in the comments for the Golden Brick winner play-in. Here's what Nico had to say. I don't believe that anyone isn't at least a little heartbroken by having to choose just one of these movies. For me, it came down to a real Sophie's choice between The Fits and Tangerine. In the end, I chose The Fits. But over the course of writing this comment, I've changed my mind and want <laughs> to go back and click Tangerine. It's only mid-February, and Film Spotting Madness is already tearing me apart. <laughs> just the play-in rounds, Nico. That's what it's here to do. If you want to participate in the madness, and why wouldn't you? Filmspotting.net slash madness. That's the easiest way. Filmspotting.net slash madness. Again, these play-in votes will be up through the weekend, but this is how the schedule is going to work. On next week's show, we'll dive into the 32 first-round matchups. Probably not all of them, but we'll highlight the ones that are definitely our favorite or the ones that provide the biggest conundrum and make us want to tear our hair out like Nico. But those picks will actually go live on Monday. So, If you're not following all the dates, here's all you need to know. I'll break it down very simply. Every Monday is when a new round will be posted at our website, filmspotting.net slash madness. Later that week on Friday, when you download Filmspotting, you'll hear us talking about those particular votes. But every Monday around noon, a new round will go live. And that means if you want to jump right into it, you want to get on the voting as quickly as you can, there's two ways you can do it. Don't wait for the show. Just go ahead and go to the website, filmspotting.net slash madness, or you can subscribe to the Filmspotting newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. That goes out every Monday, so that will give you those picks, and it will link you right to the voting. All right. A point of order question for you, sir. Okay. Uh, I'm following you. I'm all with it. But can any of this begin until the person who lost our prediction brackets last year fulfills his duty Listeners likely know Uh that you, myself, producer Sam Van Hogren, and Film Spotting Madness founder, listener Mike Merrigan, who Uh came up with this brilliant idea, Uh we always put together a prediction bracket all the way down the line. Each matchup, who's going to win? We compile points. And at the end, Uh someone does all the math. And I never lose. I never lose. Someone across from me always loses. Someone loses. Last year, that someone— This was fun when you lost. What's the punishment again? Remind me. What's the punishment well, for the loser? Because we don't have an award for the winner. That would be no. generous and yes. positive. Yes. But because Instead we are bitter and angry. Right. As I remember the bylaws, mm-hmm. you just had to watch an Adam Sandler movie from the last year. So Uncut Gems, boom. No. Done. Not only is it more specific than that, there is no loophole where, uh, where Uncut Gems, Prove just it. because it is playing... On Netflix. It is a Adam Sandler Netflix yeah. produced. Adam Sandler Netflix movie. Uncut Gems. Produced film from the last year. I believe there was something with, um, oh, it doesn't matter. It was terrible. It's a murder and mystery. You, and you're going to have to watch it. And I'm going to love it. Now, and I think it's over two hours long. I don't, I don't know if this whole contest can begin until you've met your duty. Yeah. 
I, I'm gonna love this. Next next week you have like twenty I know. best movies of the twenty to prepare for, to and you're gonna have me watch Adam Sandler because I, I waited till the last minute. I can't wait to see your. I mean, letterbox. I really waited till the last. Your minute. letterbox log is gonna be I, fantastic. You know what? It's I gonna can't. Be the Turin horse. Uh huh. I've already seen it, and Adam, I'm not rewatching it. <laughs> Touch of sin. Yeah. <laughs> Adam Sandler. <laughs> well, I hope you feel good about that, Josh. I love it. <laughs> I am going to have to get to it. Whatever that title is, you're right. Film Spotting Madness can't officially begin until the loser pays up. So I guess that's on my docket for the weekend. And now I hate Film Spotting Madness. <laughs> Hello, Adam and Josh. This is Henrik Hansen calling from Yalding in Kent, UK. And uh, my choice for performer of the decade would have to be Rafe Fiennes. If you look at the breadth of his work, his range... I mean, he played Voldemort during the decade. He played M with that suave steel. And then we have Grand Budapest Hotel, where he was sublime. He was so funny, and it was because you, you never knew which way he was going to go. The, 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 the role was written beautifully well, but he just inhabited it. And you just never knew what he was going to say or do. And, and it was delightful. There were so many edges and curves to that performance. But all of this pales into insignificance when you look at his work in what I would say is the greatest scene of this century, let alone the decade, which, of course, is the would the detour so simple scene from Hail Caesar. All right, let's try this. Your line... Just say it as I said. Say your line exactly as I'm about to. Just as I'm about to do. Sure. Okay. Would the detour so simple? 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 My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say twer? Well, you should say it like I said. Yes. Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? I don't even credit the movie. Hail Caesar is a little bit of a mixed bag for me. But that scene, along with the No Dames dance number, which is also brilliant, that would the detour so simple scene, that is the 21st century who's on first. And I can't say any better than that. Thank you very much. Take care. We get back to our countdown of the top 10 performers of the decade with that voicemail from Henrik Hansen. Thank you, Henrik, for... A great pick there, Ray Fines. Another case, Josh, where maybe we would agree the numbers don't totally add up for him. But, man, I love that scene, which we talked about a lot when Hail Caesar came out. And even though I feel like I have to say this every time, even though I'm a little mixed on the Grand Budapest Hotel, I was all in on Ray Fines' performance. He was among my top five of that year in our CFCA voting. So can't really argue with Henrik's reasoning at all. I don't want to argue. I just want to... I just want to move on because he's probably right. Okay. Well, that voicemail did prompt our producer, Sam, to throw out a little conversation starter because he's with Henrik as well on Ray Fiennes' performance in Grand Budapest Hotel, thinking maybe that's his favorite of the decade. Sam wondered if we had one that stood out as the single performance of the decade. And really, that's an impossible task. But it sounds like maybe in just kind of talking to you off air, you're going to make it a trio 
You think it's that performance? Well, I'm going to say that for now because, yes, I do love it. I think it's that good. But also because the other two that are in the running are by people who are yet to come on my list. Okay. So maybe I'll nod to them when I bring them up. Okay. So I'm actually using this as a way to sneak in a guy who absolutely deserves to be in contention for the top 10 and is someone who is on my top 10 list as recently as earlier this afternoon. And he just got bumped at the last minute. When I think about my favorite single performance of the decade, I think it might just be Oscar Isaac as Lewin Davis in the Coen Brothers Inside Lewin Davis. And of course, I do like the musical performances. I like his voice. I like the songs that he sings. But there's something about that kind of loner, isolated character, his cynicism, his nihilism, really. He just has this negative view of the world. And yet there is something at his core that makes him want to connect with people. That's why he is ultimately a performer. He's just always at odds with himself. And he is a bastard. He is an absolute bastard. And yet he's a fascinating character. And he's someone certainly, as you watch him consistently make the wrong choice again and again, you are rooting for him because he's someone who is just in the wrong place, kind of at the wrong time. And there will be a lot more discussion of him and that film in the coming weeks as we get to our favorite films of the decade. But that might be the one that I immediately go to, Oscar Isaac and Inside Lewin Davis, and might just he make your list of the top 10 performers, Josh? Well, I, I'm in shock. Does this mean he's not on your top 10? He's not 10? on my Is list. Is that what you just said? Yeah, I bumped Oscar him out. Isaac? I bumped him out. Adam. I know. I, I, I don't. Do I know you? It's hard. This, this list making is hard. He's my number five. Okay. And I thought he would have been higher, actually. He's another one who got bumped down for me. Yeah. Bumped down to number five. So drive, a supporting part. But I remember seeing him in the Nativity Story and noticing him, even though that was a supporting part, but not noticing him the way I did in Drive, um, where suddenly this was a guy you want to see everything he's in. And yeah, follows that up with, among other things, Inside Lewin Davis delivers on that promise enormously. Ex Machina, our joint number one film of mm-hmm. that year. Is that the only time that's no, happened I think, since? Did I have it at number one or number two? Uh, you had it at number one. I, I had know it at the top I did. two. I know I did. We both loved it at any yep. rate. And Oscar Isaac, one big reason. And then I'm going to defend his run in Star Wars. I know some people are skeptical. That's one of the the characters that I, I wish those movies had used more. Um, he was just such a perfect fit and so much fun. What is interesting about Oscar Isaac is that he's possibly the best thing about all of those movies that I mentioned. He might be the best thing in them. So this is a case where I'm weighing the performances um, even more so than the films. And those are all very, very good films. I mean, to be the best thing about my favorite film of the year is saying something. Uh, You mentioned him being a bastard in Inside Lewin Davis. He's kind of a little bit of a bastard all the time. All the time. But he's so he's a rogue. charismatic. Yeah, it's it's charisma curdled. What what he offers, and uh, except for the Star Wars films, that's where he's just allowed to let it break loose, you know. And 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 he is just that roguish Han Soloish character that you just fall for without reservation. But otherwise, there's a little there's something curdling there in what's going on, which makes him infinitely interesting. So, um, you know. I saw Sam put up a poll on Twitter pitting him against Adam Driver, and I don't I don't know where things ended up, but I saw a lot of people um, c- 
kind of knocking Oscar Isaac. And these were people who didn't like him in Star Wars. So that that didn't help. But for not doing much lately. Huh. And again, it's the recency bias thing. I, I was maybe that's why he dropped a little bit for me when I thought he might be my you know, number two or three. Um, but when you look back and go all the way back to drive and, and see what he's done and even uh, has Annihilation been mentioned? It hasn't. I, I mean, was going to bring it up myself th- here in a second. Yeah, that's that's a movie that I'm not as high on as most people. But I think um, uh, what he brings to it is, again, there's a menace, a little bit of a menace, but For sure. also a romanticism yeah. to a very, very strange part in Annihilation. So Oscar Isaac, my number five. Yeah, Oscar Isaac being... Outside of my top 10 performers just proves how this is all folly and no one really should be listening to anything we're saying. And ironically, I'm going to point out that it was kind of a numbers game with Oscar Isaac where I only had him in those two great lead performances in Ex Machina, which he's actually not even really the lead in that film. You could argue it's Donald Gleason, right? But I, I think Ex Machina feels a lot like Oscar Isaac's film and the other one, of course, being Inside Lewin Davis, which I adore and... The one you didn't mention, this is the third great performance in a very good film. I really like him in A Most Violent Year. But those other performances like Drive, like Annihilation, I think it's just because of the supporting turns there. I discounted those a little bit, Josh. But I mentioned A Most Violent Year, and at number five, I've got his co-star in that film. It's Jessica Chastain, the first runner-up in Film Spotting Madness history lost out to Michael Fassbender in that first ever Madness. And maybe her two best performances are in her two most overlooked movies, which I think would be A Most Violent Year and also Molly's Game. But she's got four more top tier performances in films, whether she's supporting or in an ensemble role in at least three of them. The Tree of Life, Take Shelter, Zero Dark Thirty, that would be the lead role, obviously, and the Christopher Nolan film Interstellar. She does solid work in a mediocre film, The Help. That's one of her two Oscar nominations from the decade. She also got nominated for Zero Dark Thirty. And she's good in Coriolanus, opposite Ray Fiennes, and in The Martian, the Ridley Scott, Matt Damon movie. For me, Chastain is the pragmatic nurturer. She's often playing these characters who are about business, and she's all about conducting herself a certain way. These are characters committed to their jobs or whatever role they have, whether it's The Martian or it's Molly's Game or it's Zero Dark or Interstellar, Most Violent Year as well. But even as the mothers in The Tree of Life and Take Shelter, there's this pragmatic quality to her that those films really need, but it's never undercutting a sense of compassion, a sense of love, a sense of grace even that she embodies. And I think if you look back at a movie like Take Shelter, one of my favorite of the decade for sure, her character owes a lot to the richness of Jeff Nichols' script and his direction. But the way she views her husband, played by Michael Shannon, his kind of betrayal of her this compromise of their marriage. It's not that he's making these bad decisions and he's putting their family in harm's way. It's that he won't let her in. It's that she expected this kind of intimacy and honesty. That's the bedrock of this marriage. And he's been leaving her out of it. So even there, she's placing this premium on integrity, whether it's personal in a marriage or whether it's professional. And that integrity that's so key to Jessica Chastain's characters, I think might be why Molly's game is actually her best vehicle. You didn't do anything wrong. I threw 
threw four people under the bus for $35,000, Charlie. I noticed you kept that out of your speech to the prosecutor. No, don't do that I took to advantage me. of gambling addicts. Donnie Silverman, my brilliant find. He lost Money. $6 million Stop. on my table. Stop. Moved to Florida, uh -huh. got a job as a substitute teacher, then hanged himself. Oh, and in that's his your fault. That's Donnie not Silverman's your fault. Dead. Harlan Eustace is in jail in Nevada, wishing he was, but that's not why I'm saying no. You're not saying no. I was named after my great grandmother. I don't care. Molly. We Dublin will stay Bloom here all night until name. you understand. Until you understand, nobody gives a sh about your good name. I do. Why? Because. Why? Because. Tell me why. Because it's all I have left. Because it's my name. So Jessica Chastain is probably a case where I gave into recency bias because as I'm listening to you and you're talking about those early films that I think are among her strongest and are remarkable. Yeah, she probably deserves a place on this list. A lot of the later ones, um, I can't really speak to. Some of those I didn't see. And I think, you know, the last couple of years, she hasn't been quite as prominent, but um, I didn't hold that against others, so I probably shouldn't have held it against her. <laughs> All right. My number four, however, this is someone, this was a late addition for me as well, because it was the only case where I was able to do, really wanted to do a little homework. Um, I thought about this person early on, and then it just seemed like, eh, hasn't hasn't quite done enough. And then I remembered, oh, wait a minute. He starred in a movie that just came out at the end of the year that I didn't see. Very few people saw. It got um, middling reviews um, and no awards attention, even though it seems like an awards-type film. Maybe I should watch that movie and see if this will change things. And the movie is Just Mercy, and the actor is Michael B. Jordan. Hmm. He's amazing in it. The reason I resisted Just Mercy is, I'll just say it, it looked like kind of a, it's a based on fact story. It looked like Oscar bait to me. And I have a little bit of a resistance to those. It's uh, based on a true story, an attorney, Brian Stevenson, who moved down south and began to defend death row inmates. Um, in some cases, in a most famous case, the one the movie Chronicles, overturns the case of an innocent man who had been condemned to death, played by Jamie Foxx, who's really, really good in the movie as well. So Michael B. Jordan, you know, the uh, the phrase I would think of that comes to mind for him is maybe righteous indignation. And I was afraid something like Just Mercy might double down on that. There's certainly that element there, but he brings so many more layers to this performance. There is a sequence where Brian is being brought into a jail to meet with one of his clients and one of the officers there doesn't want him there, doesn't want anything to do with him, and forces him, says, if you're going to come meet him, you have to go through a strip search. And it's this silent scene where you see fury, yet you also see dignity, you see perseverance, the discipline it takes for him to endure this for the sake of his client, and an element of shame. All of that is going on in Michael B. Jordan's face um, in a silent sequence. So let's back up. So that's just mercy. You look at the beginning of the decade, and he began it with uh, parts on two big TV shows, Friday Night Lights and Parenthood. Okay, TV, I've already said I'm, I'm kind of not really counting for this list. He got his big screen break with Chronicle, sort of a lo-fi superhero film. He's one of three co-leads, and he made more of the part that was there, I'd say. He, he definitely, the movie kind of jumps to life when he comes on screen. Then he got Fruitvale Station, which was his big screen breakout. Followed that up not long after with Creed. Um, and then came Black Panther, where as the villain, he, he almost stole the movie. Now what do you want? I want the throne. 
Hey, you, the tuna. <laughs> Y'all sitting up here comfortable. Must feel good. It's about two billion people all over the world that looks like us, but their lives are a lot harder. Wakanda has the tools to liberate them all. And what tools are those? Vibranium. We've both remarked, Adam, um, in looking at the Marvel films, how crucial the villains are. And um, his Killmonger is maybe the best yeah. MCU villain. I love One of my favorite MCU moments is still um, his auntie line reading to Angela Bassett when, <laughs> when he breaks into Wakanda there. So I added up that, saw Just Mercy, and I figured, you know what, even using your math, he has three lead performances in very good to great movies. Um, and... You know, you could almost say he, he hasn't been as strong in the last couple of years, except I'd encourage you to check out Just Mercy. Yeah, he definitely has the films to make me consider him. And I did. But I think the difference for me would just what you consider very good to great. And that great was really important. And even though I do love that performance, best MCU villain by far as Killmonger in Black Panther. And I don't feel the same way about Fruitvale Station. You do, but I like that performance a lot. And I really like him as Creed. And I think Creed is a really good film. But again, we're talking about really good. I just didn't have enough of those great films to really consider for me to put him over the top. But man, he's one of those guys I think we're going to be thinking about when we do this again 10 years from now, for sure. My number four is the second actress on my list. And actually, she was the first actress I put down in terms of knowing she was going to make the list somewhere. And I guess we're continuing the MCU trend here a little bit. It's Scarlett Johansson. Those three great performances in three great films, of course, Marriage Story, Under the Skin, and the Spike Jones film, Her. She's also got supporting turns in two other films I love from the 2010s. We've talked about Hail Caesar. Of course, Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, one of the voices there. Jojo Rabbit, for me, Josh, a step below the movies we're talking about, but love the performance. Lucy is a pretty solid Luc Besson sci-fi thriller. And then I guess you have to consider, though really you could take them out and it wouldn't affect where she ranked for me at all. You have to consider that she was in seven films of the MCU the thing that did dominate not just the past decade, but really the past two decades of cinema, certainly the box office. And four of those seven films, Winter Soldier, Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame, we were both pretty high on. And I was always a fan of her performances in those films. Yeah, I think she, because her performances were so strong, Natasha Romanoff became really one of the instrumental yeah. figures in that story as it came to a close. Absolutely. I'm calling Scarlett Johansson the artful high wire walker. And what I mean is, there is a certain audaciousness and there is a risk to her work, but it always comes with subtlety and restraint and intense focus. So consider those three key performances. One of them, her, it's voice only. Another one, under the skin, both her voice and her body are largely restricted because she's playing this alien being. And then marriage story. Well, we've both, Josh, talked about her character, Nicole, as a real woman, a real mother, a real wife, a real actress, in stark contrast to playing the operating platform and the alien being Nicole's arc, I think is defined by needing to feel like a fully realized human being. Think about that discussion she has early on with Laura Dern's character, the lawyer in her office. And she says about herself, I just became, well, you know, the actress that was in that thing that time. And he was the draw and that would have been fine, but I got smaller. I realized I, 
I did never really come alive for myself. I was just feeding his aliveness. I think how Johansson comes alive as these disparate characters is what's so remarkable. And Under the Skin, that performance is perhaps one of hers that doesn't get enough credit because they think about the artistry of the film or the technique of the film more than anything. And her alien creature is certainly in stark contrast to the expressiveness of say Jeff Bridges and Starman, which we just talked about. It's such a low key performance that I think you can overlook how incredible she is at channeling all this energy that she can't expend physically or vocally into listening and into watching to the point where then, her point of view becomes the only point of view that you see everything through as well. And I interviewed Glazer when Under the Skin came out here on the show, and he actually talked about the filmmaking with her as a high wire act. That was his term because he was getting into some of the details of shooting a lot of scenes where they were improving and improving, not just in terms of her kind of rolling with it and making up the dialogue as they went, but People on the streets didn't know they were filming, didn't know she was an actress, didn't know they were in a movie, obviously. And so they'd have certain beats where she's interacting with characters like she picks up on the road who they had a script. They had certain things they wanted to get to, certain ideas that needed to be communicated or, as he said, notes to hit. But this is all happening with someone who doesn't know they're being filmed. So you just have to roll with it. And he mentioned that he thought it was a lovely place to be as a filmmaker where you're in complete control and completely out of control. But I think you have to apply that same thinking to her as a performer as well, not just the director. How many actresses could walk that line of being so in control and totally out of control within the process of acting itself and pull it off as well as she does? Do you want to look at me? This isn't Tesco's, is it? No. I noticed you looking at me before. And? I like it. You uncomfortable? No, just want to go to Tesco's. So you never think about it then? Think about what? Being the girl. Well, you're right to have her on the list, but she should be higher up. I've got her at number two, actually. Yeah. Well, she, she was two for me earlier in the day. So okay. just slotting things around and getting crazy with it, and she, she dropped a four. She's an early, a top one that stuck. Like, I, I, I had an idea she'd be pretty high up, and then when I really looked at things and started weighing them against other performers, um, yeah, she's up there at number two for me. And I think what's interesting about Johansson, um, when you look at this decade in particular, so obviously, you know, had become a star, a huge star. Um, in the 2000s, but was still, I think, considered and given parts that were, you know, of the bombshell variety, let's say. That was part of the persona. And the 2010s, you see in the parts she chose and the performances she gave, playing with that a little bit, commenting on it, and in the process, expanding um, our understanding of what she was capable of. Mm -hmm. So even a smaller movie she made, this was 2013, but it was Don John directed by and starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt. She has a small part there. Um, the movie itself is about porn addiction and it's sort of riffing on her as this idea of, you know, the idealized modern woman physically. Um, and then she does something like Under the Skin, which is her key performance, I think. You're right. And as this alien, you know, a lot of what that movie was about, it was about many things. One of the things the movie was about, I think, was the metaphysical weight 
we give to our physical appearances mm-hmm. and what that means um, for the men who encounter this alien. They don't know she's an alien, but how they respond, the whole, a lot of the movie was exploring that sort of stuff. So then between the MCU films that followed, you know, her most notable roles are probably another voice performance other than her, um, Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, you mentioned it. So two disembodied Mm -hmm. performances. And then in the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar, it's essentially a bombshell spoofing part, right? As as the the bathing beauty star. Um, And so it's just interesting to me. just as she was maybe about to drift off into starlet territory after Lost in Translation and maybe a few other films um, in the 2000s, the 2010s saw her cement herself as as both – she pulled off two things. She still – she didn't go off into art film land and disappear. Mm-hmm. She still held her place with the MCU performances um, in the larger Hollywood zeitgeist and – solidified her abilities as a serious actress in serious work that was often commenting on the sort of things that we maybe previously used to mm-hmm. misidentify her. So, yeah. so yeah, it's been a remarkable decade for Scarlett Johansson. All right. We agree on ScarJo. That brings us then to my number three performer of the decade. And this is an actor I had as my number one of the 2000s, dropping to the number two slot as an actor, three overall in terms of performers. What a fall. But Seriously, quite a run of dominance over two decades for Leonardo DiCaprio. I mentioned that IndieWire list earlier. He ranked at number 12 on that list. The writer argues correctly that we should all forget whatever he suffered through to make The Revenant. Quote, his real tour de force performance came a year earlier in the form of coked up stockbroker Jordan Belfort. Channeling a rapid fire James Cagney, DiCaprio plays the hard driving, slick talking, pill popping, working class Wall Street huckster with an endless hunger for more. I think Wolf, and I know obviously, and longtime listeners know we split on that film quite strongly, but Wolf of Wall Street is one of at least three great performances in three great movies, along with Django Unchained and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You've got two more that are really close, Inception and Shutter Island, and then two more that plenty of people would probably use as key evidence to make their case for DiCaprio, but I'm a little bit sour on The Great Gatsby, the Baz Luhrmann film, and Inyari 2's The Revenant. No issue with his performance in either, again, just the films themselves. But I think of DiCaprio and what he pulls off, especially over these films of the past 10 years, and there is something that is inherently Gatsby-like about him. He's an actor who can give you all the style and flash and charisma, and it all belies a melancholy and an insecurity and a darkness and a destructiveness that he can also tap into really easily. It's undoubtedly in every tiny stutter of Rick Dalton's and every anguish dismissal of his acting ability in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think about with these characters, there being always sort of a double life, him always coexisting between two worlds, even Calvin Candy. And that was the performance, that supporting turn in Quentin Tarantino's film that made me have even more respect for what he can do. He's this super destructive, violent man. And yet it's all done with this veneer of the ideal, genteel Southern man conducting himself with politeness and decorum. And yet he's carrying out or ordering others to carry out some truly horrible and heinous acts. And he plays that villainy. I was rewatching some scenes from Django earlier today, as much as I could 
stomach, I suppose. And I do like that film quite a bit. But some of these scenes where he plays that villain so smoothly, and I don't mean smooth like, oh, well, he's a charming devil. He he excites you or you're drawn to him. I mean smooth in the way that he plays Candy as someone who is neither titillated by the pain and suffering that he's causing, nor in any way at all tormented by it. It's just his right to inflict. Now, if I was holding the skull of a, of a of an Isaac Newton or, or Galileo, these three dimples would be found in the area of the skull most associated with creativity. But this is the skull of old Ben. And in the skull of old Ben, unburdened by genius, these three dimples exist in the area of the skull most associated with civility. Now, bright boy, I will admit you are pretty clever. But if I took this hammer here and I bashed in your skull with it, you would have the same three dimples in the same place as old Ben. Hey! Don't lay your palms flat on that tabletop! If you lift those palms off that turtle shell tabletop, Mr. Pooch is going to let loose with both barrels that sawed off. He's another one in terms of those collaborations. Two with Scorsese, very good from the decade. Three, four, actually, of course, Gangs of New York and The Departed from the previous decade. I don't know if I'm overlooking any others. That The Departed is still my favorite, DiCaprio. And two, as I said, with Tarantino, Hollywood, and Django. Is he on your list, Josh? And if he's not, how can you justify no Leo? He's, he's a late bump. It's, it, he had a weird journey. He wasn't initially on it because I was thinking the 2000s were his decade, as you indicated, right? Yeah. And then I thought, well, I got to ta- take a look just because of Hollywood. You know, he was so good in Hollywood. So I took a look and, oh, yeah, l- look at all these movies. I know. So he went on the list. And then I kind of zeroed in on, okay, Let's set the movies aside and look at the performances themselves. And I think that's that's the only reason he fell off. But he he probably belongs. I mean, I would just say Shutter Island and Inception um, in both there. There can be a similarity. This goes back to like where we started, where your discussion of actors as auteurs. Yes, there should be themes that they're Mm -hmm. interested in um, and give variations. And sometimes there aren't enough variations for me in DiCaprio's performances. So I really like both of those movies, Shutter Island and Inception, but I don't know if he's necessarily the best thing about them. Um, And then he has some that just that don't work for me. Um, J. Edgar, um, I don't think works. Um, you know, The Revenant, as much as I love that film, I know you do not. Um, I, I don't know, like it wasn't because of his suffering right. <laughs> on screen. That wasn't what enthralled me about that movie. The Wolf of Wall Street, I'm really torn on because I think there are moments where DiCaprio is at his best. Mm-hmm. I've, I've always said he's at his best playing weasels yeah. and Belfort is the ultimate weasel, right? Um, but then there are other moments and it's part of my issue with the film where you can see him straining. Um, so there was just enough of a, uh, but I don't know about this one, but I really love this one that he kind of fell off. But you make a strong case. It's it's shocking that the guy has been able to, yeah. at, at the very least, sustain this degree of for 20 important years. relevance for 20 years. And he's, he's pretty young. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. Yeah, that's the thing is we're talking about people like Driver and Saoirse Ronan who we think are really going to assert themselves. I think what we're saying is we feel like the best is yet to come, even though they've already done really prodigious work. The thought that DiCaprio might have his best years behind him, 
I guess just based on his age and some of these performances, I could believe that. But do we really think there's not another two or three tremendous performances in DiCaprio? For sure. At least? I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, there are, for sure. Okay, so I think if we're in sync here, we need to hear your number three and number two. We need to hear my number two and number one. Is that correct? You need to hear my number three and my number one. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's right. You I had Scarlett Johansson Scarlett was at, at number two. So you want me to do number three? Yeah, go ahead and do number three. Okay, I'm stealing some thunder here from you, but that's where I put Joaquin Phoenix. Um, he's at number three, and yeah, this is a case... I mean, comparing to Leonardo DiCaprio, compare the titles I'm going to list and his performances in them. So I'm still here. The Master. Her inherent vice. You were never really here. The Sisters Brothers I'm including in this list. Um, and another one that I know we're not together on, even with his performance, but Joker. I mean, there was only one significant film he made that his performance didn't quite work for me, and that was in The Immigrant, the James Gray film. Just mm-hmm. thought, you know, if there's if there's something he can tend to drift into is a little too much sleepiness. Yeah. I like the coiledness <laughs> that he brings, but sometimes the coils, like, relax a yeah. little too much. Yeah. Um, and I think that was an issue in The Immigrant. But, man, all those others, I think of Phoenix as um, – the, here's the coil thing. He's the acting equivalent of that tendon in your neck. That when you get angry or you get tense, when you get furious, it sticks out, right? It's tightly wound. It's ready to snap. But this is why he's so high on the list because then he gives you something like her where he's so incredibly sweet or inherent vice where he's hysterically funny. And you realize that this is one of those performers that does lock into one thing he Mm -hmm. was made to do but can just shift and do something completely different just as brilliantly. Well, I'm sorry if, if I got out of hand last night. It's cold in those. Don't apologize. You're a scoundrel. <laughs> and as a scientist and a connoisseur, I have I have no idea the contents of this remarkable potion. What's in it? Secrets. <laughs> Can you make more? Well, not like that. I can make you something different, better, make something special for you. How do you like to feel? Yeah, he's my number one. You are stealing my thunder. You knew that, though. Joaquin Phoenix, the guy I'm calling our mythical misfit. And those four great performances to me are The Master, Mm -hmm. Her, Inherent Vice, and You Were Never Really Here. Three great films, You Were Never Really Here, maybe just a notch below, but all four of those films are movies that most cinephiles would list among the top 100 of the decade, and there's definitely a world where all four of those were part of our film spotting Madness 64, as it is two of those four are, and they're very high seeds. And I also really liked him in Jacques Odiar's The Sisters Brothers, playing some different notes along with John C. Riley. there. He was also really good in a movie nobody saw that I thought was pretty decent. Don't worry, he won't get far on foot. And there are two films I didn't like at all, but yes, you can't say he wasn't committed to Joker and to I'm Still Here. But that quartet of performances, maybe the only connection you can make between the fractured Freddie Quell, that sensitive Theodore, Certainly that sweetness is there. The stoner Doc Sportello and the traumatized violent Joe in the Lynn Ramsey film is loneliness and isolation and this disconnection from society. And as it's portrayed by Phoenix, as it's really embodied by Phoenix, that alienation does become mythic. And certainly with Freddie, who I would still point to as the key 
performance here, the best Joaquin Phoenix performance, it's a combination of spiritual and physical pain. And it's funny that we both went to physiology, I suppose, for our metaphors here. But I look back at my notes from our master discussion, and I described him as like an arthritic fist. He's just crumpled and stiff as if every single part of his body, but not just his body, every part of his being is in pain in The Master. And we've used this term with one of our other shared picks, Tilda Swinton's, talking about just the profound weirdness of some of the characters he plays and he pulls off. The weirdness of these misfits trying to navigate America post-World War II, post-Vietnam, falling for an operating system with nothing physical to react to. Scenes like Joe in You Were Never Really Here with the dying man on the kitchen floor, the dying man that he's responsible for his condition that he lays down next to and has this odd moment of tenderness with. With Phoenix, it's never anything but fascinating and vulnerable. And I've mentioned this IndieWire list a few times, their top 50. Curiously, curious to me anyway, none of these performances made the top 50. There was a performance from the master, actually, at number one. Philip Seymour Hoffman. And that processing scene, we've talked about it a lot with those two. That just might be the scene of the decade. Well, speaking of performances of the decade, this is the one that I didn't want to spoil. It's Freddie Quell. Phoenix says Freddie Quell. If I didn't go with Ray Fiennes in Grand Budapest Hotel, I would absolutely pick him. And it is all, it, it's not just the extreme physicality, but as you said, it's the way it's evoking the spiritual trauma of this man. Um, that makes it so remarkable. And comparing it to, you know, what he does with his face there. Uh, again, I think what he's doing in Joker is 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 pretty amazing. But he's doing that double without any makeup work, any sort of additional help um, in the master. He's doing that. He's contorting his face to manifest that that pain all on his own. So that might have to be my pick for the uh, the male performance of the decade. Certainly going to get no argument from me. That means. We've heard my number one. I've got one pick left, my number two, but we're ready to hear your number one performer of the decade. And I can't believe I have no idea who it is. Well, probably because she hasn't been very busy of late. But if you look back, go to the beginning and look throughout, you'll see that Jennifer Lawrence is... My favorite performer of the decade. I actually did know she was going to make your list. I knew she was going to make the list. And I thought, you know, we haven't seen her in a lot um, lately, so she'll probably be at the bottom. But but then as I tried to push that recency bias away um, and just looked at everything she has been in. And again, this is one that comes down to what she's doing in these movies and how much these movies rely on her. These are tour de forces that would not exist without Jennifer Lawrence. And that goes back to my favorite film of 2010, Winter's Bone. That's just an incredibly, a, a portrait of a young woman who's who's playing multiple roles at once, this mother figure to her siblings who also needs a mother and a parent, and she's negotiating her way through this backwoods town. Uh, it's a remarkable performance. She follows that up with two great partnerships with David O. Russell. And here's probably where you and I are going to diverge because yeah. um, you're not – I know you don't like American Hustle. I forget if you're also not a fan of Silver Linings. Not a Linings fan of Silver Linings. I think she's fine in it. Yeah. So David O. Russell, not your thing. But what he's done in both of those films, more Silver Linings playbook really, is is, is give her a chance um, to bite with – 
all of the ferocity that she brings to a performance into a great role. She she does that in American Hustle too, as well, but it's a supporting part, more comedic. I think she's amazing in it. Now, at the same time, we've talked about, I did talk about Scarlett Johansson anchoring um, a popular part in the MCU films. The reason Jennifer Lawrence is so high for me is because I'm higher than most people on the Hunger Games franchise, which yeah. is long forgotten. I think you liked at least one or two of the movies as well. I did. And in fact, one of the reasons I did consider her, I'll just interject, she didn't make my top 10 actresses, but she was strongly considered. And one of the reasons was not just Winter's Bone, but it was how much I loved her performance in part three. I think Mocking Jay. Yeah. I think she's remarkable. I had her among my favorite performances by an actress that year. Well, here's the thing about the Hunger Games films is that not only are they above average franchise entries, but they all depend on her performance as much as they do the effects or even the premise. So it's kind of think about, you know, Natasha Romanoff, like if the entire MCU universe depended on Scarlett Johansson pulling off that part. I mean, we spoke about how she began to really inform that part. So it became more important as the franchise went on, but it didn't rely on her. And The Hunger Games was entirely about Jennifer Lawrence's yeah. performance. Now, she was dinged, even in my estimation, for joy. That is not a great partnership with David O. Russell. That's where he gives her the whole thing, and it was a bit misconceived. It didn't work. I also think her foray into another franchise as Mystique in the X-Men films didn't work. So just when I was about to, you know, say, uh, maybe she started out strong and faded, mm-hmm. I remembered, well, mother, and mother is... Mother. I mean, it's mother. Mother. It's it's really something. It is bold, if nothing else. And if I stuck with that film and I'm I'm mixed to negative on it. But if I stuck with it at all, it was due to Lawrence. And she just has a volatility and unpredictability that she brings even to those franchise roles um, that makes her track record put her at the top for me. I think I understand that recency bias is going to hold her back for some, but um, when you take the decade as a whole, I think it's pretty formidable. I was all set to try to contradict your quick summation there of my take on David O. Russell and say, no, I'm a fan, but looking over his filmography, I kind of like Spanking the Monkey and I kind of like I Heart Huckabees. I love Three Kings, but I can pretty much leave the rest. So, yeah, maybe I'm not as big on David O. Russell as I thought. Jennifer Lawrence. Not a surprise and a great pick by you. We're going to close out with the only pick of mine you haven't heard, my number two performer of the decade. And there are other actresses and actors who were, if you're just doing the math, they were in more movies I loved from the decade. But the reason she's this high, and this actually was something articulated in a Slack conversation with Sam earlier today, is that when I consider the performers who I go see a film just because I want to watch them, She's that performer. And it's Michelle Williams. Five great performances in only two maybe great films. Those great films being Meek's Cutoff, the Kelly Reichert film, and Manchester by the Sea in a supporting role. One very good film, Kelly Reichert's Certain Women, part of the triptych there. Two pretty good films in Take This Waltz, and I know I'm in the minority here, but Blue Valentine, for which she got an Oscar nomination. She's great in both of those movies. And she's memorable in smaller parts in Shutter Island, in Wonderstruck, and My Week with Marilyn. I can't say a lot for that movie. She got an Oscar nomination for it. I understand why she's very good in that movie. 
the way I'm describing her, the phrase I've come up with that actually I completely stole from Kenneth Lonergan is the little volcano, because that's kind of how he described her writing in 2016 for Variety, talking about directing Michelle Williams. And he started by referencing the first time he ever saw her was on stage in a Mike Lee play. And then he says, I've never seen her play anything quite that weird again. But in the years to come, I watch Michelle embody one wildly different role after another, burrowing into the emotional heart of each with an eye-widening thoroughness that allowed her to be transformed in her whole person by what she found there. Physically, she is small. In person, she gives the impression of being very delicate, but there's nothing small or delicate about the volcano of feeling she has on tap, ready to loosen to whatever channels the specifics of her role suggest. Despite my long ingrained opinion that writing and acting are essentially the same process, there are times when I just don't understand that extra bit of magic by which an actor actually becomes what I can only write down. I've wanted to work with her for years, but I was totally unprepared for just how hard she works and how much she has to offer. So it's funny coming off the Oscars where Renee Zellweger got an Oscar nomination, got an Oscar win for playing Judy Garland. I think about that description of the volcano of feeling she has on tap and her multi-talented nature as a singer, as a dancer. Michelle Williams is someone who can do it all. She probably maybe wouldn't have pulled off the look, but she could have pulled off everything else with Judy Garland. And that comment he has about that extra bit of magic where an actor becomes what I can only write down. That's one of my favorite questions of late to ask directors about actors here on the show. I did it with the Safdie brothers twice. I did it with Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fails talking about Jonathan Major's performance in The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Give me a moment or a scene that stands out for you, something in the moment you were directing. You guys wrote this script. You have it ingrained every beat, every emotion, every bit of humor that could come out of it. And yet, give me a moment where they did something that startled you. They did something with the part that you realized until that moment that they just rendered, this character hadn't really come alive. So again, about a specific choice or just an aura they kind of bring to the character that only reveals itself in front of the camera when that person says those lines. And Josh, if I was a writer-director... I think the number one person I'd want to see and hear say my words, even if there wasn't actually a part for her, even if there's no way she could actually play this character in the movie, I just needed someone to be kind of my line reader so I could actually, as a writer and director, tap into the nuance of the character, it would be her. I just want to see what she imbues that character with. I think she's that good. And I look over the actresses that kind of made my top three spots here in the top five. Think about how really talented, insanely talented they all are. But think about how different Jessica Chastain is from Scarlett Johansson, how different she is from Michelle Williams. I'm really glad that we get to see all three of them on the big screen. But Williams is the one of those three of all the actors I considered who I just want to go see what she's going to do and what choices she's going to make on screen the most. Well, the start to the decade for her, I mean, look at 2010 alone. I actually think I really like her in Blue Valentine. She had a naturalness there that kind of balanced the ticks of Ryan Gosling, another person who hasn't come up for either of us. Come up but, yet. You know, considered. Uh, definitely considered. Yeah. And then 2010, she also did Shutter Island and Meek's Cutoff, as you mentioned. Those are both wife roles, you could say, but mm-hmm. but polar opposites in terms of significance. I think Meek's Cutoff gives her, you know, so much more to do than Shutter Island really did. So maybe she didn't make my list, just, you know, I'm not as sold on her and take this waltz. Um, and, you know, some of the, I think her triumph in the latter half of the decade 
definitely Manchester mm-hmm. by the sea. Um, probably enough to justify putting her on the list. And did you mention Fosse Verdon? The well, I didn't because TV doesn't count. You're not counting that, okay? Because I I didn't watch it, but I know incredible. You did. Yeah, yeah, I watched the whole series and loved her. So I'm sure, even though you're you're not officially counting it, that's factoring into your decision. She had a enough. Bit. She had enough just based on the movies, Josh, to be my number two performer of the decade. So we've heard a lot of great picks. Anybody you mentioned is somebody I considered. I'm sure everyone I mentioned is someone you at least considered. Yeah. But are there any other names besides Ryan Gosling or in addition to Ryan Gosling that haven't come up that you want to make sure people know? Yeah, I thought about them. OK, so Amy Adams, a lot of people threw out there. I looked into her filmography, definitely gave her Three some Oscar consideration. Noms and yeah, this decade. I can't, I can't say the Oscar noms influenced me that much. No, me anyone, neither. But Kate Blanchett also considered um, Carrie Mulligan. I thought she would be on your list. Yep. Oh, that was hard. Yep. So hard to leave her off. I think, you know, maybe her triumph is wildlife. Very small film, the Paul well, Dano-directed film. I agree, along with Never Let Me Go, yes. Yeah, I, I really wanted to get her on the list as well. I also looked into Jake Gyllenhaal, considered Tom Hiddleston, Rachel Weisz. Can I put Anna Paquin on there for Margaret alone? Yeah. I mean, would that be legitimate? And let me just mention a couple other names here. Um, probably if I was a better cinephile and I had seen all of Zhajanka's 2010s films, mm-hmm. A Touch of Sin, Mountains Made Apart, and Ashes Purest White, Zhao Tao would have made my list. I've only seen two of those, have not seen Mountains Made Apart, so I couldn't legitimately put her on this list. Melissa McCarthy, I worked so hard to get Melissa McCarthy huh. on here, but um, some great highs, way too many lows, way too many lows for her. One more name. I wanted to be, throw a wrench into all this, Adam, and put Andy Circus on, just as a way to capture <laughs> the era. But look at, you know, it was the decade of motion capture performances, and he was the master of it. You had Gollum in the Hobbit films, Snoke in Star Wars, okay, maybe maybe no one needed Snoke, but also his triumph, Caesar and the Planet of the Apes movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, those worked brilliantly, largely because of him. So just a nod there to Andy Serkis's motion capture work. Okay, actresses you haven't mentioned. Kristen Stewart, Personal Shopper, Clouds of Sils Maria, Certain Women, Charlize Theron, Young Adult, great, obviously, in Mad Max Fury Road, also, I think, very good in Tully, Emma Stone, Easy A, La La Land, The Favorite. I also like her in Crazy Stupid Love. I like her in Birdman, even though I don't like that movie much. I should also clarify Amy Adams' four Oscar nominations this decade, actually, not three. The most of, I'm pretty sure, any of the names we've mentioned otherwise. So, yes, it truly seems like we ignored the Oscars. How about Rooney Mara? At one point was in my top five for her performances in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, for Side Effects, the Soderbergh film, for Carol, for David Lowry's A Ghost Story, and then smaller turns in some really good films like her like the social network she's also opposite joaquin phoenix and don't worry he won't get far on foot i like her in the discovery and a few others as far as actors i thought about matthew mcconaughey michael shannon you mentioned robert pattinson he made your list ryan gosling that was tough he almost jumped into the top 10 earlier today just based on the strength of la la land of first man of drive of Blue Valentine, his performance is okay, I think, in that film. I'm not a huge fan of that film overall, not as good as Williams. What Similarly about, mixed. What about The Nice Guys? Are you Yeah, The, the nice, nice Guys. guys I'm going to get there right favorite. after The Place Beyond the Pines. I really like him in that as well. I like him in Crazy Stupid Love with Emma Stone. He pops up in The Big Short as well. So he's got a lot of great titles. I'm sure there are many others that we missed. But I think between our honorable mentions and our choices, we got a good 
20 to 25 great performers in there, Josh. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. If you want to see our complete rankings, maybe we'll even throw on all the honorable mentions. Just go to filmspotting.net slash lists. At any time, you can find all of our picks there. You can also yell at us about our lack of including some of your favorites on Facebook or on Twitter. Find Adam at Film Spotting. You can find me at Larson on Film. And if you want to go over to the show archives at filmspotting.net, that's where you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005. And Film Spotting Madness 2020 has begun, so vote in the current Film Spotting poll. The play-in round is what we're doing as the poll this week. And I do want to note here, because I failed to do it earlier, if you are trying to cram in some homework at the last minute. Make sure you have seen every film before you vote that is going to be part of the bracket. And people have been doing this with our shortlist, but that shortlist has a lot of extra titles on it, and some of them are not going to make the final 64. I am going to post on our Madness page a link over to Letterboxd where you can see every title that is officially in Film Spotting Madness this year. So it's not the bracket. You don't know what the seeds are going to be or what they're matching up against. But if you just want to see the titles and make sure you can squeeze in any viewing at the last minute, go to filmspotting.net slash madness. If you want to order Film Spotting t-shirts or any other Film Spotting merch, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, The Call of the Wild with Harrison Ford and a CGI dog. Brahms, The Boy 2. This is a sequel to the 2016 horror film, The Boy. I'm not sure if that's true, but I'm going to have to believe Sam on that one. In limited release, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. If it is anywhere near you in a theater, please do go. Next week, as we said, top 20 films of the decade. It's part one, so our 20 through 11 picks. And also next week, it's the first monthly bonus show for listeners who support us on Patreon, an eight isn't enough from 84 review of Beverly Hills Cop. More info about supporting Film Spotting on Patreon at patreon.com slash Film Spotting. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. The music this week comes from Chicago's Beach Bunny. More information is at beachbunnymusic.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener-supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.